Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Catherine DeOrio, Lacritz, MD, Clinical Associate Professor in Obstetrics and Gynecology here at Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Lacritz received a BA at Carleton College, completed her medical degree at University of Vermont, and completed her residency at Long Island Jewish Hospital, which is now referred to as Northwell. She's received multiple awards as a professor, including recently the Jefferson Award for Outstanding Teaching in 2022, Excellence in Teaching, and Distinguished Teaching. As such, she has participated in the development of the curriculum here at SKMC and the structure of education for medical students here at Jefferson. She's also the Clerkship Director for Obstetrics and Gynecology, and she's a widely loved teacher here at Jefferson for her bubbly personality and strong advocate for student education and patient rights, with much of her patient her published research revolving around those subjects as well. Welcome, Dr. Lackert. So we always start here with a discussion of statistics, and so I'm just going to get right into the statistics here. Go ahead. So salary. Average salary of a physician is 339000 Median academic medicine associate slash full professor OBGYN salary is 323000 Hours. Average physician, 51 hours per week. OBGYN, 58 hours per week. Training. Step 1 score, 231 compared to 232 average. Step 2, 247 compared to the 245 average, and usually four years of residency training. In regards to burnout, the average for all physicians is 47%. Uh, OBGYN was third from the top at 53%. EM was at the top at 60%. And dermatology, public health were at the bottom at 33% and 26% respectively. And according to OBGYNs, the, most great, the greatest contributor to this burnout was too many bureaucratic tasks. When asked, would you choose the same specialty, Derm and Ortho went to the top at 99 and 97%. OBGYN was at 76%, and IM was at the bottom at 63%. So those are the end of my statistics. Were there any that stood out to you in any way? Anyone you want to comment on? I think that it's too bad that people look at paycheck as a, a fairness for your choices that you make. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you look at medians on lots of things because there's yeah. a huge amount of variety and range there. Um, I think burnout is a huge issue for everyone. I, my patients, my staff, my team, I think everyone's struggling right now figuring out how to like get motivated for the next season, the next challenge, the next whatever's happening next. But I think OB is a field that has, I think, very little burnout. I think a lot of frustrations, but I think very little burnout. Does that main reason make sense to you? The reason they say is too many bureaucratic tasks or is it different for you? I think we love our work. Okay. I think we adore our job. I think we see our job as caring for people with uteruses, yeah. birthing peoples, being an advocate, speaking out. I mm -hmm. think as that is my job, I am passionate for it. Mm -hmm. Bureaucratic tasks that take me from my work is a great example of a non-burnout burnout. burnout. I'm happiest when I'm helping a person deliver a baby. I get annoyed doing discharge summaries. I can't say they cause me burnout, but it's a fascinating reflection on our personality type. We tend to be doers, tend to be mm -hmm. very active with our hands, and we're happiest when we're doing stuff. And so things that take us from doing to like sitting and documenting are not always universal strengths. Um, I think that bureaucratic tasks, if they're including litigation and lawsuits, it's a huge mm -hmm. cause of OB burnout. We're kind of expected to deliver perfection. There's not much tolerance for variant from ideal outcome, which is challenging because Childbirth is not always a guaranteed perfect outcome. Pregnancy is not a safe thing to do. Um, and I think the expectation versus reality check that we face is a huge challenge. But I think that the majority of people I know in OB love the field and feel so enthused to be there and really on a daily basis re-motivated and re-engaged and re-committed to the field. Did you ever feel burnout at any stage in your career or no? Um, I don't think so. I had a 
bad outcome when I was an attending and okay. I was really upset. Like a bad thing happened. I was really upset. And my husband was like, you should stop delivering babies. Just do paps in the office. Find a path that's less stressful. We don't need you to do this. Like it's overwhelming. You put so much of yourself into it and you're so sad a bad thing happened. And for like a good five minutes, I was like, I'll just go to the office. I'll just do paps. I'll just do birth control. That'll be okay. And literally the fifth minute, I was like, oh, I can't imagine. I would be so unhappy. And it helped me on my professional journey to realizing like it's a confidence issue. If you think someone's better than you, you can't do your job well. If you think you're the best, then you're an egotistical, narcissistic asshole. There's got to be some middle ground. It kind of occurred to me with some coaching and support from my friends that like I was the best trained person for the job. I had done things as best as they could have been done. I hadn't made a mistake. I hadn't had a judgment error. I might look back with more wisdom or more clarity with experience, but at the time, like I, I did a really good job. And even though I did that, a bad thing still happened. Um, that helped me a lot to be like, I'm the best one for the job. I'm not the best person ever, and I'm not the only person who does this, but if the job is to be done and I'm there, I'm the best for the job. And that kind of mantra helped me get through some of the, I wouldn't call it burnout, I'd call it like stress and like anxiety. Like, oh my God, something bad happened and I was there, so am I the reason a bad thing happened? Or do I often prevent bad things or mitigate bad things or help people get through bad things? And I think that's like part of the OB burnout is that like we deal with a lot of high stress anxiety species and you know, people have so many assumptions about us like, oh, mm -hmm. you deliver babies. That must be fun. I'm like, when it's fun, it's fun. It's not always fun. Like, oh, it's so happy where you work. Like so, sometimes it's really happy. Sometimes it's really, really sad. Mm -hmm. Oh, healthy young patients. That must be lovely. I'm like, Sure, some people are healthy and young and not all birthing people fit those criteria. So mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a, um, I think we get a little defensive. You know, my I had an uncle who was a urologist and he like lost his bananas when I picked OB. He's like, you're not even a real surgeon. You should do a surgical intern year. You shouldn't be called a urogynecologist. You should be a gyne-urologist. And I was like, well, good to see you too. And like, happy Thanksgiving. Like, yay, like family. And he was so pissy that we weren't surgeons. We always called in urology to help save our butts. And I was like, well, do you want me fixing a ureter? No, okay, you don't. Okay, do you want do you want to take out uteruses all day? Oh, you don't want to do that. Okay. Sometimes we hit ureters and bladders. They're in our they're like our next door neighbors in like a townhouse, like we share a wall. But also like we're not urologists, we're OBGYNs. And I think that defensiveness against the kind of the world and the assumptions we face from sometimes it feels like all sides. Mm -hmm. And it can contribute to stress. But I also think we know who we are. Like, we yeah. know what we do. People who need us love us. And that's usually enough. So tell me, what is an OBGYN, if I don't know what an OBGYN is? Um, a lot of people don't know what we are. So OBGYN is obstetrics and gynecology. Obstetrics is a field of caring for people who are pregnant, um, desiring pregnancy or recovering from pregnancy. Gynecology is the specialty of people who have uteruses, vaginas, vulvas, ovaries, that space. Um, I always tell the story that gynecology was part of general surgery and there was a great schism of 1842. I slightly made that up, but I tend to learn more about it. I intend to become an expert. So Gen Surge included Euro, Optho, Ortho, ENT were all part of Gen Surge and OB was its own thing with a lot of midwifery care and doctors were kind of figuring out that role and how to step in and they weren't always doing a great job at all. And then they decided to put OB and GYN together and take GYN from Gen Surge which is a really logical thing for lots of reasons, but also does separate us in other ways. Mm. So you mentioned surgery. Do all OBGYNs do surgery? All of us in our residency perform surgery extensively. Got it. 
Okay. All of us to become board certified must perform surgery for our first few years of independent practice. In our practices, people do a lot of different choices of how they choose to practice. Um, so like on labor and delivery doing a C-section, I would consider surgery. Others would not, but like if you're holding a knife mm-hmm. and cutting a baby out, I feel like a surgery. If there's a vaginal delivery with a bad laceration that needs to be repaired with like pelvic floor stuff, like that's a form of like repair, a form of surgery. Not all of us do hysterectomies, not all of us do robotic hysterectomies, but some OBGYNs do robotic hysts three days a week. Some don't do hysts anymore. There's a huge variety from minimally invasive surgery, outpatient surgery, abortion care, labor and delivery care, all the way to Gyn-Onc, which is a four-year fellowship after OB that does our most extensive surgical training and our most complicated surgeries. Mm-hmm. What do you do? So I'm a general OBGYN or a specialist in women's mm-hmm. health. Um, personally, I was trained for all of the things. My current practice, I do labor and delivery and outpatient. I don't do much GYN surgery at all. Between running the medical students and running labor, like beyond labor and delivery, I couldn't find a way to get enough OR days full enough with big cases to keep my skills where I wanted them to be. In residency, I did, I would say, five to 10 hysterectomies a week for 20 weeks of every year, and there are four years. As an attending in my first two years total, I did six hysterectomies, so doing three a year. But my patients were young and in their 20s, and they did not need hysterectomies. And then those who did need hysterectomies had complicated surgical histories, complicated you know, issues. Com- like, I had so many complex patients that I was quickly finding my practice was really limited. When I took over the clerkship, I went from a full-time faculty to only 50% fac- faculty, mm-hmm. and I lost one of my OR days, which was what I compromised that I made along with having two kids and covering labor and delivery on nights, I realized really fast I was much happier as an attending doing the office and doing labor and delivery not worrying about the GYN stuff. So I do minor procedures for GYN, but nothing major anymore. Got it. That makes sense. That seems like a good, definite life balance, which I think is a huge thing to think about, right, when you're going into your specialty. So on an average week, do you spend kind of two days in the office, two days in the hospital, and then no days in the OR, one day maybe teaching full-time? or So my week is beautiful and I love my week. I'm at the office usually two or three days a week, depending on the week. I do labor and delivery one day a week and then I teach one day a week. I do overnight call one weeknight per month and one Friday per month. So I take one post-call day per month to kind of recover from being on call. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I have a lot of like admin work, teaching work. I work with the residents a lot. So there's a lot of things that kind of occupy me, but I go to two different outpatient offices. And so each day of my week, I go somewhere new and do something different, which I really, really like. I find that is important to me. So when does an app, so let's say it's a labor and delivery day. Mm-hmm. What time would you get into the hospital? So if I'm the primary labor and delivery, I come in at seven. Mm-hmm. Um, we get sign out. We do morning report. We run the board, run through the patients. And I sign out at 5 p.m. So seven to five. Seven to five. And then a, a, a night attending covers from five to seven. Then And that, is that call? That's call. That's okay. how we do it as Got attendings. It. It. The residents do night flow, but we just do call. You just do call. Okay. And then if something catastrophically goes bad and the residents can't handle it, knock on wood, right, which I'm sure they can all handle it, but they would need your support for some reason. They would call you and you would come in and that's what on call is or no? I'm going to restate no. it. Okay. When I'm on call, I don't leave the building. I like I see. physically won't okay. set foot off of labor and delivery. Got it. Okay. So our on call is in the hospital, working alongside, seeing every patient, delivering every baby, doing all the surgeries, all the consults, holding I it see. together. We're lucky to have midwife colleagues who also help with our low-risk deliveries. Um, we don't take home call. One of the big reasons I love Jefferson is that when you're on call, you're in the building and you, I mean, like, sometimes we'll run out to Starbucks, like, mm-hmm. run to get a beverage, but we really don't, like, I don't leave the floor, I don't leave the hospital. Or if I'm going to step out for a single second, I'll tell my charge nurse and everyone on the floor, like, I'm going to physically 
go to pick up the beverage and bring mm-hmm. it back to my mouth, and that's it. I We're see. really committed to the floor. And that's different because some specialties have home call, right? That's mm-hmm. different. Okay. Yep. okay. So other services like medicine, when you're on call for that week, you might take overnight phone calls from the residents and fellows who can't handle complex patients or whatever, but you won't be expected to be up in the hospital all night. But your phone would go off throughout the week. Um, on labor and de- like the way OBGYN does it, whoever's in-house on call takes all of the calls, all of the consults, all of the deliveries. Like they run the entire service which I really love. I really like the sense of like ownership and autonomy. And I like that I'm not at home. I worry if I was at home in bed and they're like, oh, there's a problem. I'd be like, I'll be there in 10, but I'd go back to sleep. Like I, <laughs> I hope I wouldn't, but I uh-huh. would worry. I like very much being in the hospital and being held accountable. Um, but also when I'm done, like, I turn off and I go home and I'm finished. Dude, this is a silly question, but you, I guess, do you have a special, I should know this really, do you have a special attending phone for the hospital or do they just call your regular phone? They call my regular phone. They just phone. call your regular yeah. phone. Okay. They, uh, they don't have to call me. Yeah, because you're there. <laughs> I'm literally there. there. Like the room that I sit in has a computer. I can monitor the floor and mm-hmm. the tracings. If I'm going to put my head down and nap, which I do sometimes, mm-hmm. I will tell my chargers, my midwife, and my chief resident physically where I'll be, which is on labor and delivery on a room on the floor. Um, everyone can come in my room. It's not locked. People can find me and get me anytime they need it. Um, I meet every patient. I see everyone on the floor. I manage every tracing. We have a midwife colleague and mm-hmm. chief resident as well, but we're very hands-on. And tracing, you mean, is that that's the fetal heart rate tracing mm-hmm. that goes throughout? Okay, okay. So you're, so the screen has that that on every patient. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Eye in the sky. Eye in the sky. So why OBGYN? Well, <laughs> um, if you tell the story forward through my life, it seems random at times. If you look backwards, it seems really, really linear. So like going backwards first, um, the very first memory I have in my life, like the first memory that I know is mine, is my sister Sarah being born. Uh, she was born at home as like a planned home birth with a midwife. And my mom was really excited to have a home birth. And she had two in the hospital. And she like made cookies and had like a fire in her fireplace. And the midwife was there. And the story is that like bedtime came. They tried to put us all to sleep. My sister Anne, who's older, like went to bed. And she's a very like good kid. I'm not a good kid. I wouldn't go to bed. How and old I, were you? When the three. Time? Three, wow. I took my little blankie and I made a little bed right by her door so I could listen to what was happening. And my dad, I'm sure, heard me. I'm sure I was not quiet. And he came out and was like, what are you doing? I was like, is the baby here? He was like, no, go to bed. And I kept, I wouldn't go to bed. I kept coming over and over and over. So finally she brought me in the room and let me like count with her and breathe with her. And like, I spent most of the night with her, like loving the labor curve, which is not normal three-year-old behavior. Yeah. I wasn't physically there when the baby was born. They had to step out for the baby, but I was there when the placenta came out. And the story goes, the placenta came out and I looked and I was like, huh, it looks like a pizza. <laughs> my mom was like, what's wrong with you? And then Sarah was born. My sister Anne took her to her bedroom and like put her in doll clothes like right away. My parents didn't really maybe have that thought out that well. Um, and I stayed with my mom and helped her recover and like helped like get things together. At three years old, you're doing this. But there was a midwife. They're yeah. professionals. Uh-huh. I wasn't like single-handedly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I stayed with my mom and then we just hung out and ate cookies that she'd made the day before. It's a Jewish holiday of Purim. So they had hamantashen. And like that was my very first memory. And so, like, my whole life, I look back at that moment and I can remember, like, everything else in my childhood's like, I don't know, it's kind of vague and, like, normal. But that moment, I'm like, oh, yeah, there was a fire in the fireplace. We counted, we breathed, we put, there was a baby, then there was a placenta. Like, I can remember it. So, when growing up, my parents, I grew up in D.C., are really big advocates for, like, women's autonomy and abortion access and choice. We marched a ton. We spoke out a ton. We did a lot of advocacy work for those issues. Um, I ended up going to all-girl camps all-girls schools for middle school and high school. 
Um, I got really involved in outdoor education and kayaking and all those sort of outdoor things and got really kind of a sense of like empowerment and confidence. I took a year off after high school and became a wilderness EMT. Wow. And I came home from my year off and like got a job in a DC ER. And I was like, I'm going to be an ER attending. I'm going to be an EMT. I'm going to be ER, EMT. This is me all the way. I'm like gung-ho. So I went to college and I was like, I've got a plan. I'm going to pre-med. I'm going to be a religion major. I've got a whole vision. And I like followed my plan. Like it worked out the way I wanted it to work out. I ended up living in the Women's Awareness House and I was a student wellness advisor who worked primarily on sexual health and like consent and like date rape and all the different STD stuff and like sex ed education, contraception. Like as a college student, I did my college thesis on radical feminist Jewish theology. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which like, it makes sense as an OB looking back, yeah. but at the time it seemed- Still ER, still- Oh, 100% yeah. ER. Because I would every summer break work at the ER, every winter break work at the ER. My manager kept my card active so I could come home and pick up shifts and it was great. And I got to med school and I was like, ER. And then I was like, or maybe peds. So I was like, okay, peds or ER or pediatric ER or peds or ER was my plan. But I was like, you know, I really liked the trauma surge in the ER. I had stolen a trauma pager. I did not have any rights to have a trauma pager, but I had taken one. So whenever I was working and there was a trauma and it was a pretty busy, like, like DC ER, there was a lot of trauma. I would run to the trauma bay and like help with the traumas. And I was like, that girl, Kate, like doing the things for traumas. And so I was like, all right, if I'm not ER, maybe I'm trauma surge. I was like, yeah, trauma surge, like so cool. So are you? Sorry, are you? Are you? So you did the EMT. undergrad, all you're, undergrad, all undergrad. So all your undergrad. position in the hospital at that point is like a like a. Technically, I was called a patient services associate. I was a PSA level two, I believe. Got but, it. Um, I didn't take managing well. I was not um, inclined to follow the duties of my job. Um, but I was an hourly employee. Like I was clocked in, clocked out, and so I was technically like a nurse's aide. I like vital signs, EKGs. I wasn't good with needles, so I didn't really do IVs, but um, running around the hospital, transporting like radiology, pharmacy, up to admissions, just helping, lacerations, EKGs, like whatever, turning patients, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever needed doing, like I did it. A useful set of hands. Basically. And like a really enthusiastic mm -hmm. one, like the, the other PSAs were not pre-med, very active, hyper students who wanted to be doctors. They were like career professionals in their 50s who like worked hard and consistently and diligently. And I was not not that person. I was very excited to like have fun and like learn stuff. Um, so med school came, I was like thinking ER trauma surge, maybe pediatrics. Um, and then I got my OB as my first third year of rotation. Like I hadn't requested it first. I didn't want it first. I didn't think about it as a career at all. Like it was nowhere on my list. And the first day I felt like head over heels. I like loved the conversations. I loved the teamwork. I loved the camaraderie. I think having sisters and being at all girls schools and all the work I'd done on like feminist theology and undergrad, all I was like, whoa, the OB, like this fits so well. And then that night there was a crash C-section, like a woman needed an emergency surgery. And so they ran down the hall and like helped the baby get out quickly. And it was like a one minute C-section, like it was out in a minute. And that like trauma surgery part of me that liked that feeling, I was like, oh, this is it. Like they have the outpatient care, they have the trauma, like they have the triaging, like the emergency style visits, but not an ER, not like that much chaos, like a focused ER, but an ER. And I'm like, and they do trauma surge. Like there's blood and transfusions and emergencies. And it like, I loved it. And I, that first night, I look back with so much shame. I like out loud prayed. I was like, please send twins. They're like, shut up. I was like, I wish there'd be an abruption. They're like, just shut your mouth. I was like, triplets would be cool. What about breach extraction? I had like a dream checklist. And the residents were like, "This is a as a med student." First right? night as a med student, my first overnight shift, the residents were like, "You need to shut your mouth. 
We don't wish those things upon us. If they happen, we will deal with them and you will be in the corner out of the way where you belong. So I quickly realized like how to work on the team, how to make it work. Um, and then ever since I picked it, like nothing compared. Like I loved neurology. I loved medicine. I loved surge. I liked everything I did, but OB was my total heart and soul. I have to say I had a fantastic, similarly to you, my first ever rotation, a first ever time being in the hospital was OBGYN. And I walked in, you know, expecting, you know, you know, maybe I'd be sitting outside the rooms. Mothers wouldn't want me to be in there because I'm a sure. guy and they'd kick me out. That's fine. But I was pushed right into it. I remember I walked in the residence like, oh, we're doing a C-section. Do you want to come in? I'm like, I'm in like full suit. They're like, well, you put on scrubs and then you come in. And I was like, okay, I don't know what to do. And then I remember my first memory, I think, ever was like, the inside of someone is really warm <laughs> because they're like, put your hand in here. And I was like, it is so warm. I, what is going on? They're, and she's awake over there. What is, go, what is happening here? It's crazy. I was, I was also, I was like, this is amazing. And I strongly thought about OB for a long, long time after that experience because I really had a fantastic, fantastic experience there. I was in it always. I didn't know, I didn't have any relation to what the other, you know, clinical rotations would be like. So this was my impression of what medicine in the hospital was. And I was like, this is crazy. So to step back, what is what is wilderness EMT? Are you kind of in the trees, like finding people if they yeah, go on hikes search and, and stuff like that? Yeah. So my high school, I went to a really special, lovely, private, all-girls, slightly preppy um, school in D.C. that had a varsity program in whitewater kayaking. And so I got really involved. So you race other people or how does it work? Um, like navigating the rapids mm -hmm. and just like basically having fun. We didn't we didn't do races. We just like did it for fun. Yeah. Um, and so after school every day, we would take a bus to the river, the Potomac River, and kayak until the sunset and then drive home and like go home and like shower and then like do it again. And so every fall and spring, we'd kayak in the winter. We'd do winter kayaking and then do like first aid and search and rescue and go out winter camping in like West Virginia and Pennsylvania like in the mountains. And so when, on my year off, I was going to travel and like work um, in East Africa. So my parents and I were like, they're like, why don't you do an EMT course before you go? So you have some foundational skills and it might be a good kind of a career moment to figure out like, do you, are you like, what, what would you like to do with this? And like, maybe it give you some direction. Cause I was kind of clueless at the time, like happily clueless. And so I'd done all this like first aid stuff in high school and like first responder stuff in high school. So the wilderness first aid courses in New Hampshire, there's like outdoor program where you like practice search and rescue, practice carrying heavy things, practice building splints out of logs and shoelaces and like water purification and altitude sickness and burns and scuba medicine, like all this cool emergency room stuff that when I came back from a year abroad, I was able to use, I didn't ever work as a wilderness EMT. Like I never, I interviewed for three jobs as EMTs in like the Bethesda area, but I was like, I don't want to sit in a firehouse and drive an ambulance. Like that's, it's not really my style. Um, so my job at the ER kind of helped me bring it all together. And you did go to Africa for a year? Mm -hmm. Where in Africa did you go? So I lived in Kenya for okay. a year. I lived with a family the first semester and taught in a high school. Um, and then a second semester, I did a Knowles program. Knowles is like the National Outdoor Leadership School. It's like a wilderness, like hiking kind of program. So I spent a semester hiking and traveling around um, Kenya with my course, doing like just like kind of fun, cool stuff. Um, and it was amazing. So did you take any gap years or anything? That like? was my only that gap was the, year. That was the one gap year. Okay. So you were doing kind of in the summertime, I guess you took the EMT course? In and August. Then, yeah. And then, in, and then you know, September. It was, again, in hindsight. So there was a terrible bombing of the embassy in Kenya in Nairobi in August. And I landed at the city like a few, I think it was maybe a week or two later. It was mm. in hindsight. I'm like, I'm sorry. What did I do? Like mom, dad, they're like, we knew you'd be fine. Like you're such a good kid, good travel skill, like you got a good head on. And I had a program that like yeah. received me and helped me get to like a safe location. But 
in hindsight, I'm like, maybe the bombing of the embassy wasn't a good time to go to that country. But again, it was before 9-11. It was yeah. a very different time in global politics and people didn't perceive risk, I think, the way we perceive it now. Mm-hmm. It must have been a great experience. Though. I mean, seeing the other side of the world, really, and when you're, what, I guess... I was eight, eight, 17. Eight, 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 I turned 18 in Uganda. Yeah. yeah. I mean, wow. and um, part of the story that I kind of like to, I think is important to hear, is that like in high school, I was not a good student. I didn't take AP courses. I like, it was a competitive private school, but I didn't like go above and beyond. I like mm-hmm. barely made it through, but I made it through. Mm-hmm. Um, and the program for teaching was like, you'll teach English in Kenya. And I was like, I can do that. That sounds like, and live with a family. Like, I was like, that sounds like a great cultural exchange. And like, I'd love to do it. And when I showed up to my school, they were like, you're teaching chemistry and biology. I was like, oh, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not prepared for that. And they were like, you are teaching chemistry. That's what we need. And biology. I was like, I I can't. I don't I don't have that skill set. Like I'm not I'm not a good student. I don't want to embarrass myself in front of like high school students who I'm teaching. Like it was high schoolers and I was 17. So like it it's gonna be yeah, a disaster. Right. And there was no internet. So I wrote a handwritten letter to my high school teacher. I was like, Dear Mrs. Clevenger, I hope you are doing well. I'm in the western province of Kenya in a small town outside of Kakamega. I've been assigned to teach chemistry. I have the textbook and I have the teacher's copy, but it is challenging material if you could support me in any way I would really appreciate it and she wrote she sent me back lesson plans periodic tables examples of problem sets like stuff I had been assigned as a high school student and had failed to grasp and at night with my family with a little lantern on the table I like crammed the material I studied my butt off I worked so hard to learn it so I could teach it to my students I could pass their national test because you have to pass tests to like move up in education um and like my geography teacher Mrs. Sharma sent like stuff like my high school teacher's and my parents like went like ab- great people. above and beyond. But like, yeah. imagine the kid who got like a C in your course, writing a handwritten letter with like 14 stamps from Kenya being like, I hope you are well. I am in Kenya. I was assigned to teach. They did not need English. They I'm had- in charge of chemistry for I, Kenya now. I'm, I'm concerned that I'm unprepared. And it, when I came home and was like considering pre-med, the semester of cramming chemistry and biology to help my students learn was what allowed me to do it in college. If I hadn't done that, it like in hindsight, it like worked perfectly at the time it was not the plan um because i wasn't like a really good student at science i was not that's not my strength at all so med school was the beginning you were thinking pediatric surgery maybe em and then you were ob residency what was residency like we can start at the beginning um i was a very confident medical student who did not have or receive any mentorship so no one read personal statements no one looked at my list of application programs no one gave me advice about myself as an applicant. I just applied to programs, figured it would work out. Like, luckily it worked out and I matched. Like, I still think it's shocking that I matched, but I matched at a wonderful program, which I loved, Long Island Jewish. Um, residency was definitely a challenge because it's real 80-hour weeks. Like, they weren't 60 or 50 or 30-hour weeks. They were routinely 80-hour weeks. My program, we always started at 6 in the morning. We went through sign-out, which was usually 5 to 6 p.m. We did evening clinic one night a week from 5 to 8 p.m., um, and then we did call either Friday night or Saturday 24, three out of the four weekends of the month. And then our night float did Sunday 24s and then did Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday overnights. So it was a lot. It's a lot. It was a lot. Um, but I loved it. I was not the world's greatest intern, but I was a really good resident as I got more experienced. Um, I loved the patients. I loved my faculty. The nurses consistently were amazing and really educators and teachers. Um, I had a really high volume program. So we did like five, 6,000 deliveries a year, which five residents per class, that many deliveries. So we were, I think I did 500 vaginal deliveries, 500 C-sections wow. in residency. 
um, hundreds of history, like a, just a lot of surgery, a lot of deliveries. And, and being in Queens and New York was phenomenal for education because it's a real cross-section. I mean, we had a perfect cross-section of international, local, um, all different people coming through. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I look back with like, there's some funny stories on like good and bad times, but as a whole, I left residency like prepared, ready to go, feeling great. What's the comparison between uh, like a sub-I fourth-year medical student and like a first-year intern as one of those people? So say I'm in the fourth year. So what, not necessarily am I doing differently, but what were the big things that stood out in your mind if you remember going from the fourth year of medical school to being an intern? I think a lot about athleticism that like, I'm not that athletic, but I could probably run a mile. I don't, I don't think I'd look pretty, but I could do it. But if you want me to run 26 miles, I don't have the capacity. I would be unable to do that. I feel like most of us can rally for a month of being a sub-I. You're coming in rested, coming in prepared. You've got groceries prepared. You've got your laundry done. It's one month of your life to be a sub-I. And even the best sub-I is not a full intern. They're like a piece of an intern or they're like collaborating with an intern. They have an intern to back them up. Um, I feel like intern year, the challenges I faced were that I was prepared as much as you could be. But I'd only carried four to six patients before, and our intern list was often 20 patients. Um, I never carried a list while being told I was in the wrong place 45 times a day. As an intern, we would cover triage, cover deliveries, help with the floor, and run postpartum. And so if you're at postpartum for someone having a blood pressure or a fever or bleeding, and you missed a delivery, they'd be like, you missed a delivery. You'd be like, yeah, but I was taking care of someone who was having a blood pressure emergency or bleeding or a headache or whatever. If you were in triage seeing a patient for like rule out labor, you might also miss a delivery. They'd be like, where were you? Be like, I was in triage. Like, how could I be three places at once? And so that was a big adjustment. Whereas a medical student, I would often hear like, great job in triage. When you're done, come to the delivery or oh, come to the delivery. Like it's time to step away. As an intern, what I felt like I got told a lot was like wrong place, wrong time, wrong place, wrong time. But I'd always ask like, what would you have liked me to do? Should she have waited and I should have done the delivery first and then come to see her? Should I have hurried and gone faster in that evaluation? Like, how could I have been smarter than that? But um, when it really came down to it, that's part of internship. It's sort of learning that you're keeping all the balls in the air. You're missing stuff sometimes. But if you're taking care of patients and working efficiently, like, it's going to work out fine. Do you think that was your hardest year of training? Or do you think it gets harder or easier? I mean, my program, I thought intern year was pretty much hard. I think second year of my program was pretty hard too. Third and fourth years were much, much better because you're more comfortable. But you've built up your endurance. Mm -hmm. um, I think intern year, it's not just that it's a hard year. It's that it's a year of hardness. And so you don't get, like, we got four one-week vacations through the year, which was a really lucky schedule. Um, people I knew got two two-week blocks or got one one-month block which could mean you could do a nine-month straight, no break, and then a one-month vacation and then back in. Or two vacations for a full calendar year, working every weekend, working every holiday. Wow. It's really not ideal. Um, I think it's designed to kind of beat you down. The benefit, though, is that you see a lot. You don't miss, like, I don't think that's a great way of looking at medical education. It's like, just keep pushing. But I think that the end gain of that education is that you've seen so many things. Um I think that we should restructure medical education to not be that way. I did mm -hmm. not think it's the ideal way of doing it. But coming out of residency, like I was, I felt very confident. I was like, I don't think I've, I couldn't imagine something I hadn't seen a few times before. When do you think your confidence peaked? As a, I guess, as an still OP? peaking, still peaking, still peaking. Okay. Um, I think that. I mean, it's sort of a joke that like you look around for the attending and you realize you're the attending, yeah. and you look for like the attending, you're attending, yeah. and you're like, no, no, you are the attendingest attending. Um, there's, <laughs> no, there's no one else. I haven't heard that. Most attending, this attending. That's great. You are the one. I think that 
there's sort of a sweet spot in people's careers. The first few years, you're just building experience outside of residency. And like, I always say that like med school is to residency the way that residency is to being an attending. Like they're big jumps and you have to keep adapting to it. The best fourth year medical student still has a big jump to make as an intern. The best chief resident has a big jump to be an attending. It's just, you're as prepared as you could be and there's still work to be done. Um, I would say that most of us five years out feel pretty confident. Yeah. Um, okay. The first five years, I think there's more learning curve. And also you don't want to, you don't want to like call too many C-sections or push too many bad tracings. You don't want to aggressively do too many vacuums and forceps, nor do you want to like finding your sort of your own space is challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, what is push too many tracings? Is that- like if you're, if the baby is showing D-cells. Okay. You can tolerate that a lot. Like the babies can have D cells and be totally fine. But if you tolerate too many D cells or let them like have too many heart rate abnormalities, you're going to have a baby who might have like an acidemia or other complications of delivery. And like that's your fault as an obstetrician. You have to be in charge of that. But if every time you see D cell, you call a C section, you're going to do a lot of C sections. And then your patients are going to have bad outcomes from so many surgeries and blood transfusions and infections and down the line problems. And you're building a problem for tomorrow. And so part of OBGYN is trying to predict like, who can have a vaginal delivery safely for mom and baby and mm-hmm. who needs an operative delivery or a C-section? And it's, it just takes tons of experience. And you can still be wrong. I see. I read a statistic recently, this is kind of jumping off the, the side a little bit, but the American rate of C-sections seems to be higher than country, other countries around the world. Do you, do you have any insight onto this? I, have no, I know nothing about it. I just remember seeing this. I think you're accurately describing the yes. stats. I think that we have a higher C-section rate Oh, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, <laughs> I have not reviewed the literature recently, yeah. but I think that most people imagine labor and delivery as like a very pleasurable experience where like they labor and then a baby comes out. It's very physical. It requires physical strength and requires good health coming into it to have the best possible outcome. Women who exercise throughout pregnancy tend to have better cardiac reserve and better cardiac function, better muscle tone. Their pregnancies, their babies tolerate labor better and they have an easier time delivering children who are normal sized. Women with obesity, women with diabetes, women with blood pressure concerns, women with preeclampsia, poor food access, socioeconomic stresses, poor prenatal care, um, chronic stress, fatigue, racism, preterm labor. There's a huge list of things that contribute to the overall health of our population. Adding that to pregnancy often exposes other issues. That coupled with the desire for every person, if you ask people in labor, they want, they're like, just take care of the baby, do whatever is best for the baby, take care of the baby. I'm like, well, yeah, but as an obstetrician gynecologist, I don't want to just take care of the baby. Both of you need to come out of here healthy and well and and doing your best. And so vaginal delivery is safest for mom and baby both most of the time, but not always. And so it becomes a huge balance of how do we find the path forward? How do we encourage healthy, safe deliveries? How do we support vaginal delivery for everyone who wants to have one? And also acknowledge that um, our patients aren't always that criteria. They don't always have that resource mm-hmm. and that uh, possibility. And even our healthiest, normalist, lowest risk patients can still have bad outcomes. Yeah. And C-sections aren't always bad outcomes, but there's there's a lot. So the thing, and of course, we're not, we're, we're just thinking here and we're taking calculus. But the thinking is that maybe more Americans are sicker and that because that way they're more prone to have, the, I guess, the risk profile where a C-section makes sense as compared to maybe... Some other countries, is that? I think we have more diverse patients who have more diverse challenges coming into pregnancy. Mm -hmm. I think that we also have a terrible structure of caring for people who are pregnant and people who are new parents, which I think contributes to some of the issues. There is no leave for pregnancy or childbirth. 
So people who take leave from work use up days off and sick time that they then can't spend with their babies. And so if you have six weeks total of sick time to use and you take a week off at the end of pregnancy because you're tired and your pelvis is sore and you're contracting and you don't want to go to work because you're exhausted, you will have five weeks with your newborn, not six. Most daycares won't take newborns until they're six weeks old. What will you do then? Right? So if you have a patient who is struggling with sciatica or pelvic pressure or just discomforts of pregnancy, I mean, I'm happy to write it out of work. I'm happy to say she shouldn't work or shouldn't be doing manual labor, but it, they can't always accept that precaution. When you're home with a newborn, most people in most countries give paid leave to parents so they can care for their newborn and recover from childbirth. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. Um, we don't have a support system for that situation. If there's a complication of delivery, I mean, I had a patient a few months ago who after the delivery had a nerve injury and had a hard time standing and walking. Mm-hmm. It got better, but it was a really challenging recovery for her. And so her husband, who was so sweet, was like, what, what are we going to do? She can't drive. She can't take care of the baby. Like, what are we going to do? And I looked at him. I was like, you need to take your FMLA leave now and care for your partner and your child. He's like, well, I don't want to. That's a bad time. I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry. The, the plan is you. You are the plan. They had really expected that she would skate through delivery and spend the first six weeks of her recovery caring for her newborn. Instead, she needed care and the newborn needed care. And her partner did amazing, stepped up, helped out, all positive things. That shouldn't have to be a conversation. Mm -hmm. Like, it's striking to me how many women work through pregnancy without pause, including all the OBGYNs you see. Like, all of us work through our pregnancy Mm -hmm. until we deliver. We don't take time off. We just work. But that's maybe not the best thing. I see. And Although I support like people's choices, like they can do what they want. We don't. We have no support. And the reason is because there's a. I, I'm just ignorant of many of these things. But there's a six week standardized time off that recovery people, recovery that people get for pregnancy and delivery and things like that. No, it's six weeks for medical disability for delivering a child. Medical disability for delivering a child. It's the FMLA. Okay. So it's a universal protection of your job, I of see. which six weeks are paid and six weeks are unpaid. Most of us can't afford six unpaid weeks in our annual budget. Um, and not all jobs offer FMLA leave, so some jobs don't offer any leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so it depends on the state you're in, the job you have, the insurance you have, your family structure, your job structure. If you get leave, if you get paid leave, how much leave you get. Yeah, I see. Okay. Okay. To sidestep again, <laughs> if I gave you $100 million today. Thank you. Would you you're welcome. Would you A, continue working full-time? Yes. B, switch to part-time? C, stop working entirely, or D, pick another career. Oh, my God. I would keep working. Keep working full-time. Okay. I mean, I might do, I might make small changes to have a better work-life balance, but mm-hmm. I already have a, my kids are nine and 10 years old. I have a pretty good balance. I would maybe invest in like a high-speed train to deposit me from work to home faster and more efficiently, or maybe I'd hire like a chauffeur and a chef mm-hmm. to make my home time more enjoyable, but I feel like, I really like working. I really like my job. I love my family. I love my kids. But I, first of all, could not imagine not working. I part-time, maybe, but I'd have to give something up. I mm-hmm. couldn't run the clerkship and see patients and cut cut something out. Mm-hmm. So would I take a day off a week? Maybe. I mean, I, it's possible. But I would have a hard time turning my back. Like, I like what I have right now. Yeah. Do you think there was uh, a point in your career where you were the happiest? Is this that point now? Were you more happy when you're a resident, when you're more happy when you're a med student? Or is it kind of, it's all happy, it's all part of the journey. I have different, not necessarily levels of happiness, but different types of happiness as I go through. 
Um, I was really unhappy as a first and second year medical student. Got it. I was very unhappy away from patients. I was very challenged with the curriculum and the materials. I struggled a ton with the science component of it. I didn't do great with memorization. I knew I'd do well in third year and fourth year. I knew I'd do well there, but I knew it was going to be brutal. Step one for me was brutal. That was definitely not a happy time for me. Um, my mom and dad got a lot of phone calls from me being like, oh, this is not what I want. This is terrible. Um, but ever since third year medical school, I've been pretty happy. I find a lot of joy with my patients. I mean, talking about like stopping working or working yeah. part-time, I view my patients as my friends. I realize we're not friends, but I have a joy of seeing them, connecting with them, helping them, hearing the updates. I find that to be really fulfilling and really meaningful in a way that I find joy from the meaning my work has. So that experience as a third year and a fourth year and as a resident, always been so happy. Different times in my life, there's different stresses, different outside factors, different job set factors. But um, whenever I'm in a room with a door closed and a patient, like I'm really at my happiest, um, obviously with, like at a work context. And so I think that's something that I'm really grateful to have and really like really lucky to have. Um, even my worst day, there's a great patient who I could take care of and help them out. And I really love it. That's great. Do you have any advice for, because I know there are probably a lot of other students that were in your same position, you said in that first one to two years, when maybe it seems like the academics are too much, or you get, of course, the imposter syndrome or something like that, because you're successful now, you're an attending OBGYN, you know, you're doing well. Did, did something help you or push you to be able to make it through those two years? Did anyone tell you anything? Um, I've talked about this in the past with other medical students and other contexts, I think it's really important to talk about failures and struggles and kind of normalize how normal all that is. Um, I did the year in Kenya where I taught chemistry and physics or chemistry and biology and I struggled, but I did it. In high school, I didn't do any AP classes. So in college, I did my bios, my chems, my biochems, my physics. I did everything one by one by one. And I remember in my bio class, two of my friends were in the class. They were like, oh yeah, I used the same textbook in high school. I'm like, that's called AP bio. They're like, yeah, I already did that class. I'm like, why are you in this class? This is the beginning class. Like, well, I might as well repeat it and just like shore up and get an easy A. I was like, bastards, like, you're hurting me. I hate you. Um, in chemistry, I was like, okay, I can do this. And I don't, I did that, reviewed my high school curriculum real hard. I'm ready for it. And the pace was just like a chapter a night. And I was like, oh man, this is this is rough. This is bad. And people were all chemistry majors and all working so hard and like breathing through the A's. And I was like, oh, it's brutal. Um, Physics was never my strong suit. I can't even talk about physics without having a little bit of like a cringe. I ended up taking one semester at Georgetown over the summer. I'd go to work seven to three and then do Georgetown afterwards because I just did, was like, I'll do it all by itself all summer long and I'll like get through it. But I did the one without calculus because I didn't want to do calc too. Like I tried to really choose courses thoughtfully to get through it. And so when MCAT prep came, I had passed every course in undergrad. I hadn't failed a course. I'd gotten a lot of B's which I was really proud of. I thought that was a real achievement and I was proud of myself. My science GPA was better than it had been in high school and I was like, that's amazing. Like, I'm so proud of me. Um, my MCAT course was fine, but I didn't really do that much work. I kind of went to the class and listened. But I didn't put the hours I probably should have, but I was like doing my religion major. I was doing other things. I was like, having fun. Um, and the MCAT came and I took it and I was like, I'm never taking this test again. I was like, I'm never taking this test again. It's going to be what it's going to be. Whatever the score is I get, I'm moving on. I'm never doing it again. So I met with my pre-med advisor and he was like, uh, you're 3.0 science GPA and you're like below 30 MCAT. It's not going to impress anyone in med school and you shouldn't apply because you're not going to get in. And I was like, this has been a great meeting and I'm not going to follow any of your advice and I'm going to do my own thing. And he was like, I want you to be really clear. You're, don't waste your time and money. It's not going to work. I was like, you have been very clear. I have received the message. I'm not following the advice. Goodbye, sir. Although I was like much nicer. <laughs> and 
literally, I was like, thank you for this stupid meeting. <laughs> Goodbye. And so I applied to like 30 or 40 med schools. I interviewed at six and I got on six wait lists. And I was really proud about six wait lists. And then, good. right, yeah. considering I didn't stand a chance. And the six interviews and the six wait lists was like fine in March and fine in April and fine in May. And then June came and I had graduated college and I didn't have a plan. All my other pre-med friends had made plans. We're going to med school. And I was pre-med, but not going to med school. And I started a lie about myself that I was going to go work at NASA. I was like, I'm going to go work at NASA. They're like, you got a job at NASA? I was like, sure did. Which I picked on purpose to be a big lie. Like I picked on purpose to be like, I don't know what I'm doing next. And on June 24th, I got off the wait list at Vermont. They called me. I had been calling them once a week to check in on the wait list. And I, I got in and it was so exciting. And my mom and I drove up that weekend, like shopped for apartments. Um, and it was like unbelievably privilege to get in. So lucky. So, so, so blessed that they took a chance on a kid like me. Um, but they were kind of right about me not belonging in med school. Like I think, like legitimately speaking, the 3.0 GPA and the barely skating by the MCATs when I got to med school, it was brutal. Like what they were worried was going to happen to me, the lack of preparation and the lack of readiness that they had seen in my application was absolutely borne out by the day-to-day struggle I faced. They were trying to shield me from the reality of med school, and I was unprepared to be shielded. I was like, no, no, I'll just do it. Luckily for me, I made a really good friend in med school named Jen. Jen Gillis, shout out. She's a radiologist now. Um, The first test that came, I got a 30% on, and I was crying, and I was like, I don't know what I got wrong. I don't know what I didn't know. I thought I'd worked so hard. I thought I was ready. to. I used my study skills. I thought I was ready. She's like, well, I have a master's in biochemistry. I can help if you want help. This stuff's easy for me. I was like, I, I would love that, Jen. So she would run review sessions for me like four hours a night. And she would outline the classes and the questions and the things she thought were coming up as themes and the questions they were going to ask us. And she was able to break it down and teach it to me. Um, and she was so generous with her time and so, so kind to me. Friend. Like literally, and we yeah. just met when I was crying in the hall. Like we weren't like, you know, she she helped me out so much for the first course. And she went out of her way to like show me how she knew the questions and show me what the important themes were because I wasn't catching it from lecture. When we moved to anatomy physiology, it was better. And as the year went on, I got better and better. But she helped me so much and she showed me how to do the med school studying. She showed me how to like prep the lecture, go to the lecture, study the lecture, pull out the questions, go to the next course. I was sort of looking at the notes and making charts and thinking things and feeling ready. And she was like, no, you have to hit this harder. And we used to go to Barnes and Noble in Vermont and Burlington and sit at a table. I sat there all day, every day, all the time, studying and studying and charting and graphing and writing out lectures and writing out notes and picking out test questions and trying to prep. We were the, just like SKMC, I was the first year of a new curriculum. And so the, all the other students had had hand-me-down tests. Oh, the first anatomy test, first physio test, they kind of knew what to expect. They had reworked the whole thing for us. And so our class averages were like terrible. They'd always throw out test questions. But what would happen is you take the test, you'd leave the test feeling terrible. You get a report of like 40% right they would then throw out all the invalid questions that didn't like hit the stats and be like, oh, you got to be. You'd be like, I'm sorry, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Like, how am I ready? For this? this seems unacceptable. And so people like Jen helped me. My study group helped me a ton. I got really disciplined at like how to put the hours in, how to put the studies in. Um, and it worked out that I like passed my med school courses. I luckily didn't fail any, but there were some really close calls. And then step one came and I worked really hard. I prepped for it and I passed. And I was so proud of myself for passing. I remember being like, I passed. Like, I was so happy that I passed. It didn't occur to me until a lot later on that by barely passing that test, like barely passing the test, I hadn't done that well. It, I was literally like, I passed. I was so, my med school was pass-fail. I passed that test. And I was like, oh my God, I can do this. I can get to third year and I'll be fine. Um, and like, step two was fine and everything else, like my awards, everything else has been fine in my life. But 
there were so many times I was so stressed, so strung out, so overwhelmed, really felt unprepared. And I think the imposter syndrome is an important thing that I think a lot of women inhabit as well. But I also think like if people have taken AP bio and they're in your bio class or they've masters in biochem and they're in your biochem class, you don't have an imposter syndrome. You have an underpreparation condition in which others around you can speak the amino acids and can roll right through it. And you're like, Ace for amino acid, there are 23. Like, well, there's something important there that I no longer remember. And I think with med school specifically, if I was going to redesign it, I would include more opportunities for tracking. If you've, if you've already have a master's in biochem, please don't take the biochem course. Please go and do other things. If you are already a pharmacist, great job of you. Or you were already a nurse, like all those great things. We can help your medical school education work. I think that people can do great as doctors and not need to put so much into the first two years. I think step one being pass-fail is a huge benefit and I think it's the right choice. But I also think we can make med school more like doctoring and less like, we got to know physics because people yeah. who do radiation need physics. Well, I, don't, I don't do that. I don't need that. And I've never needed that. It's like a more personalized medical school curriculum for... And a space to say that you can, if it takes you longer to understand something, but you still understand it, that's still okay. Mm-hmm. I think the pace is often one in which you feel a sense of gasping. Mm-hmm. If you take one day off or miss one hour of lecture, you can feel like you're years behind. Um, and that hole can be hard to get out of. So it sounds like discipline was was part of it. Discipline. Lack, lack thereof. Lack thereof. Finding people to talk to and people to kind of help you and guide you seems like it was huge for you. Um, and then there was one more, which I was forgetting. Uh, but yeah, discipline and, fi- and finding someone to talk to sounds like it was really, really helpful. Now, do you have any, I'm trying to think of a nice way to ask this. There, it's not a bad question. I'm just trying to think, were there any particularly memorable kind of encounters with superiors or uh, super, like chief residents or attendings or anything like that that maybe made you think, oh, I don't actually want to do OBGYN or it was never like that? It was no. always gung-ho. Okay. I'm like the inflatable clown yeah. that like you bat me down and I bounce Got back it. up with a stupid grin on my face. Yeah. Um, I was really lucky to have great mentors. One of my interns, Margaret, um, was an intern when I was a third-year medical student. And when I came back as a fourth year as a sub-I, she was delivering her second baby. I got to go to her baby shower and I got to be there for her recovery from her C-section. And I was like doing rounds. I knocked on her door. I was like, oh, hello. I'd like to come and do rounds if it's okay. And she's like, yeah, come on in, Katie. And I was like, I'm going to ask you all the questions I ask everyone else because I'm treat you like everyone else. She's like, yeah, do it, do it. Um, and like I checked her incision. I checked her fundus. I checked her breastfeeding. I did all things I would do to take care of a new mom who was recovering from a C-section. And like we've gone on to be professional friends. She was attending at Mayo. She's one of ACOG's like wellness attendings and like, we always share the memory of us. She's like, oh, you rounded on me as a med student. I'm like, I came into your room and like, like, as an attending, if I had an intern in OB delivering a baby, I'd be like, you good, you're good, bye. I wouldn't, and as a med student, I was like, I'm going to ask about your breasts mm-hmm. and your fundus and your wound and make sure you are okay and are you safe at home? And she was like, and we look back with fondness. Um, I had some attendings who were really kind to me in spite of my idiocy. Like at one point I was helping with the BSO and I was holding the ovary off the sidewall and I was perhaps pulling a little vigorously um, and I might have ripped it off the wall of the abdomen by accident. And the attending didn't say a word. just like controlled the bleeding. And it took me a few minutes. And I was like, did I, um, did I pull too hard? She's like, yeah, that was too hard. And like, I look back at that all the time. I'm like, oh, thanks, Dr. Small. Like, I remember her. I remember her. It's like a great GYN oncologist. She could have yelled at me and thrown me out. She could have lost her. Sh- she could have reasonably done all those things. But I'd done a hysterectomy with her before. And she really wanted the hysterectomy at the uterus really elevated. So mm-hmm. she's like, pull. I was like, I will pull. On the ovary, when she said pull, I didn't interpret the tissue difference and the strength I needed to use difference. Um, people are really nice. 
I really, I mean, but Vermont and I did training in Maine, like they were nice. They were encouraging. They saw a kid who's kind of bouncing a little bit wild and helped her like find a voice, find a pattern, stay safe. Um, they were really kind. I asked this because when I was going into med school, when I was first doing my clinical experience, I remember my perception of surgeons and, you know, super attendings or whatever is that they would yell at you or even throw things at you or something like that. But I was talking to a surgeon the other day and now talking to you. It seems like that's not true. Is it, I'm wondering if it's going down anymore or if it was never actually true and people just say these things to scare medical students. I think historical perspective. I think back yeah. in the day there was more space for that kind of behavior. It's not tolerated at all right now. Yeah. Like I would have to get an email if someone spoke out of line, let alone like through something, it'd, it'd be a fireable offense. Yeah. Um, I think that part of the culture of the operating room needs to be acknowledged as its own space where we treat each other differently. We have more respect. We communicate in different ways. There's more hierarchy and more roles for safety reasons. I think that also I have a potential issue of blowing off things I don't believe in. Like if someone gives me feedback I don't agree with, I just ignore it. Don't apply to med school. I'm like, I'm applying. Yeah, like, like people said things along the way that weren't nice to me, but mm -hmm. I just chose to ignore them. Yeah. And I'd be like, that's advice I'm not going to follow. I'm not going to take that to heart. Like I sort of picture myself as like a duck through water. Like, okay, the things that are important, I'm going to hold on to. I'm going to work on. I'm going to make goals for myself. I'm going to improve. I'm going to do better. But if you give me advice or you're acting mean to me, I'm just yeah. going to ignore you. Like there was a resident on Gen Surge who I ended up being assigned with for like months. Just sort of scheduling error. We were together way too long. He was a really nice guy, but really quiet, really introverted, super monosyllabic, good surgeon, good guy, but just not a talker. And he and I were assigned through random rotations to be together, I think for two or three months straight. And I was like, so we're going to be best friends. He was like, oh, we're really not. I was like, oh, oh, we are. Because we're together on this rotation. And then when you move there, I'm moving with you. And then here we're together again. And he was like, what? I was like, yup, we're going to be besties. And I broke him down. It took me a few weeks to like get there, but we like... Little by little made friends, little by little got to meet in the middle. And by the end, we like trusted each other. We teamed up together. And like, I was like, you're not allowed to ignore me for three months, buddy. Like, it's on. Like, you cannot stop me from loving this experience. I think that helped me a lot. Yeah. Where does this, because you seem to have a really positive attitude. You seem to also have a lot of energy. Yeah. Have you, have, has it always been like this? Always. Yes. Since as long as you can remember. Yes. It's, un, it's uncomfortable for others. It's <laughs> I not, think it's great. It's not always the perfect fit. And there was never a time when, you know, you made, because I've, I've spoken to some people and they're like, you know, at 13 years old, I decided I'm not going to be unhappy. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to have a positive attitude and these kind of things. It's just something that, it's just natural. It's just, you've never purposely chosen to be happy or purposely chosen to be high energy. It's just the way you are. It's just the way I am. Just the way you are. I tend to go 100% or like 0%. Like often when I go home, I like, well, I get my kids to bed and I go fully, I'm like horizontal couch, yep. like dishes undone. I don't really care. I'm more type B than type A, I okay. think. I tend to have a more tolerance of imperfection and more acceptance of like chaos is natural and like order is unnatural than other people around me. Um, I'm not a perfectionist. I don't tend to have like those urges. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I have a little bit of anxiety. I've definitely had some times in my life I've been depressed and been sad and stuff, but I find those times really unsettling. Like I find myself really leaning, like I actively hate the way that feels, which I don't think anyone likes it, but I find it uncomfortable. And so I've worked really hard through mental health work and through, like, I see a counselor every week. I work really hard on like tending to myself as an active pursuit of wellness. Um, like I schedule massages as often as I can. I try to take workouts and take walks whenever I can. I often play hooky and I'll leave work an hour early and I won't go right home. I'll like pause on the way home and go for a hike or I'll like take a post-call day and go out with friends. Like I'll try to do things that 
try to kind of build wellness into my space and time. Um, I really love my work and I love my job, but I also will intentionally say I'm taking a vacation, turn my email off. I'm taking, like I had, I work with a fourth year student. I was like, listen, I'm going to be in Cape Cod for a week in August. Do not bother me while I'm in Cape Cod. I was like, I will happily field emails before and after. But if you email me, I'll have to respond. I can't not do it, but I need you just to like, give me some space. Um, and that's something I've learned over the years so that I can keep my well full and like kind of keep caring for others. I feel like the analogy you can't pour from an empty cup. Like there's been times I've run myself pretty dry, but I'll say, okay, I'm running low on my own energy or I'm having to work hard to find the energy. That's usually my like, it's like my thermostat or like my engine. It's like my like running rate. It's just where I'm at. If I find myself lagging, then I'll say, okay, like I need to check in with myself, take a break, restore, like step back. Um, it's a luxury you get to do that. And I'm, I also think it's fair to acknowledge privilege. Like I, my parents are extremely wealthy. They went through, out of their way to support me through my education. I left med school with minimal debt. I had I had like $80,000, but not $480,000. Um, I've had support. Whenever I've hit a rough patch, my parents have supported me psychologically, physically, emotionally, financially. They've helped me. Even as an adult attending, they help me all of the time. They're coming. I'm working overnight tonight on call tonight. Mm -hmm. My parents are going to be at my house watching my kids, taking them to soccer in the morning. So, I mean, I have a babysitter when they can't come and they don't mm -hmm. come very often. But they're like, oh, we'll do this night to make sure it's just easier for you, Kate. I'm like, okay, thanks, guys. That's a luxury yeah. to have parents in their 70s who want to, in their retirement, drive up to your house, sleep in your bed for the night, watch your wild children, take your dog for a walk, and in the morning make sure there's bagels when you get home. Like, that's lovely. Bagels. That's, that's oh, Yeah, bagels. Wellness, I think, is hugely important. And I think as a medical student, um, and this is nothing against the SKMC curriculum or anything like You're in that. in a safe place. I think a lot of times we're told, you know, focus on wellness, 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 uh, and we're given you know, a tote bag or we're given a, a bar or some ice cream, which is great and everything like that. But I always wonder, maybe there's something more to wellness. Maybe there are better ways we can attack wellness. Um, and I, again, clueless here, yeah. I'm ignorant on this subject. And, you know, people need to have a certain amount of times working and time off. I guess the question is, I guess we give a two-part question is, one, the first part is, because you are involved in the curriculum and things like this, how can medical schools maybe focus better on wellness than they're doing right now. And the second question is, as a practicing doctor, as a resident, how can people, and I think you touched on it earlier, which saying, you know, paying attention to your well and things like this, how can I focus on wellness and make sure I make it important and a priority for me? I mean, there's a lot of answers to the question. Yeah. For me, I think it's a lot easier to walk around a hole than to walk out of a hole. Got it. So if I see a hole coming or I see a dip coming, I will pre -act, like preemptively try to like defend myself um, with schedule changes, with mental health time, with sleep, with food, with sustenance, like try to find that time, connection to friends and family, like those kinds of social networks that really help. I think that if you did like a survey, am I feeling okay? Am I feeling burned out? Am I attuned to things I like to do? Do I have time to be myself? Am I being beat down daily on rotation? Am I being yelled at too much? Am I failing my own values or failing others' values? Like what's going on? Sometimes you just need to go to bed. Right? Sometimes you don't need to do an hour of yoga. Sometimes you just need to have like a Pop-Tart and go to bed and try again tomorrow. Other times you're like, I've been eating Pop-Tarts and sleeping four hours a night for a month and I can't keep doing this, right? Like you have to kind of acknowledge how bad the problem is and then make a plan in response to it. Um, as a resident, I had a tradition of Friday night going for sushi when I wasn't on call. I'd go to the same restaurant, Long Island, Kotobuki, go to town. Like I would, and it would like, all week we'd have like Triscuits and hummus and boxes of pasta and like pretty fast, easy food in the cafeteria food. Just like keep it simple. And Friday night we'd like blow out on sushi and like go wild. And then Saturday, Sunday, if I wasn't working, we'd like do more cooking or do more like things to be together. 
as an attending, I have a much better schedule, which helps a lot. I have a lot better balance of my day and I control my schedule. So I control when I start, I control when I end. I have a lunch break. Most days I'm doing meetings and phone calls and emails, but I have an office with a door that closes. I can put my head down. I can watch a YouTube video. I can do stuff for home. I can do a lot that helps me hold it together. I think as a medical school, the the challenge becomes where are you on your wellness and what can we do to build it? If you are at a place where you are very fragile or vulnerable or feeling poor and there's a patient who needs you, who needs you and your attention, you'll be unable to provide it for the patient without sucking your, your own life force. Like you'll be unable to do it. If you have 30 patients a day, 10 of whom are fine, 10 of whom are sick and 10 of whom need help, you will be unable to see them day after day after day and care for them and do their phone calls and their emails and their ongoing care without really hurting yourself. But as a medical student, you're going to class all day. You're going to lecture all day. You're studying all night. Your friends are doing stuff. So I think what we're trying to say is like, you might feel better if you take a 20-minute ice cream break. Come and have ice cream. Mm -hmm. But what we want to do is say, how were you before the ice cream? How are you after the ice cream? Now, was it the ice cream itself that helped or was it the friends and the togetherness, mm-hmm. right? Is it the calories that you needed because you're hungry or was it the like, oh, celebration, we made it to Sunday night and we're going to all have a treat, right? Like, I think the question for wellness is not always like, well, go have a massage and take a hike. Like that works for me, great. But I have to be like, I'm going to go get a massage. Not like run in, run out. But I'm like, okay, I'll take a time to get a shower. I'll turn my phone off or have like, I always have the front desk, keep my phone. I'm like, keep my phone. If it rings, answer. They're like, really? I'm like, mm-hmm. If there's an emergency, it's a good I need, move, actually. Yeah, it's, it's kind a good of move. Well, I've got kids. Like, yeah. I, I can't totally go off the grid. Yeah, I need to be somewhat accountable to like people's needs. Putting the phone down, though, that's a good mm. right. So if I'm going to go for a hike, I'll like tell people where I'm going so they don't like worry about it. Um, it should it should be okay. All that being said, as a medical student, I think learning strategies is part one of wellness. Do you have what you need? Are you working the way you need to work? Are you being efficient with your time? I think part two is, are you focusing on the priorities? Are you lost in the footnotes of some arbitrary textbook? Are you hearing like the course priorities? I think three is, can you do that and eat, drink, sleep, be social, and take good care of yourself? Because I think that you could easily spend 18 hours a day just studying mm-hmm. and be a really bad doctor and really bad to yourself. Um, I think that's sort of the pacing and the focusing and the, the the journey kind of questions. Um, and then I think third year and fourth year are relatively, to me, relatively benign like you're busy, but it's like you kind of float through. You have harder and easier weeks and months, but like you kind of on a conveyor belt. But then intern year is brutal. Um, and I don't want to make fourth year worse so that you're prepared for intern year. Like I think that's a step in the wrong direction. And intern year can be made better by little things we all do. But I think for any wellness journey, the most important thing is like what helps you feel your best? Um, like my kids love like going on their Kindles and like watching like movies. I'm like, well, that's fine. But do you actually feel better afterwards? Do you actually feel better? And the answer is not always. So I'm like, let's do a watercolor. Let's do a clay project. Let's go for a walk. Let's play a game. Even like playing Xbox. Like I love playing Xbox with my son. I'm like, let's just play a together game. He's like, yeah, let's do it. But then we're like let's do it. doing it. We're hitting Minecraft dungeons and we're hitting it hard. And like, I got to do the split screen on the Xbox with it? It's not even split screen. Like we're together. Oh. It's awesome. Um, and he's a really good player. So I'm trying to keep up. I'm trying to keep my, like, I'm trying to act like I know what I'm doing. I'm like smashing all the buttons, but it's working pretty Building well. Things. Oh, no, Dungeons is a whole different platform. So original Minecraft is building stuff. Oh. Dungeons is like a journey. There's no building, which is why I like it. It's just like hunting and killing spiders and mobs and things. It's so fun. I don't even know that. It's welcome to Xbox. Um, get with the program. Sorry. So, but I will say playing Xbox for half an hour with my son, mm-hmm. 
is awesome. I love it. Doing watercolors with my daughter, awesome. Going to soccer, I love it. Like I feel like we do a great job. And I'll try to say to them the same message to the students. Do you feel better? Right? If you're hungry and you eat a sandwich, I don't care. You had a sandwich. If you're like, I'm stressed out, go outside for your sandwich. Don't put in orders while you're having your lunch. Call it a break. Give yourself a 10-minute break. Seriously, you can have 10 minutes. Nothing's going to happen in those mm-hmm. 10 minutes. I was on the floor on Wednesday, and the residents had a pretty rough couple of weeks. I was like, why don't we try today to have everyone on the team take a one-hour break? They were like, that's crazy. I'm like, it's not crazy. Everyone can have one if we schedule them correctly. And you can't leave the vicinity of the building. Go outside. You can go to a call room. You can run an errand. You can eat. Whatever. But call it a break. Like, let yourself Mm. for a second. That's the most important thing. Um, But you have to kind of name it as a need. um, And then support each other taking it. Yeah. No, that's great. And I think the point earlier, too, which was good, is noticing how you feel after you do the thing, which I think is really important. Because I'll know, like, if I do run or if I do a yoga class, I'll feel good afterwards. But if I know, you know, watch two hours of the newest Netflix thing or I'm just inside on my couch forever, I don't usually feel as good or I definitely don't feel as good. I probably even feel worse than I did if I did, like, yoga or exercise or running or outside time. It's a, it's a key distinction that I think we need to make. And even if your break is something that brings you down, at, so, so, so you take this hour break, but it's something that you don't feel as good afterwards, maybe you should switch that break to something that makes you feel better afterwards. But also, like, I find for myself when I'm studying and learning something new, first thing I'll do is make a list. Okay, I've got to learn these three things. Each one should take me one hour. I don't want to sit for three hours straight. I, I don't have the personality to sit yeah. still for three hours, but I'll do, okay, if I get through one, I'll get a walk around break, see some friends, get a snack, run around. If I get through the second one, I'll then go outside, take a walk around the block and come back for my third one and I'll go home. I'll give myself a four and a half hour window to do three tasks. When I was younger, I'd be like, I'm just sitting, get them all done. And then hours would pass. I'd lose focus. I wouldn't get them done. I wouldn't build in breaks for myself. Time would pass, but like I wouldn't be putting the energy in. Or I'd be like, I've been here all day. I studied for eight hours. Well, how much studying did you actually do versus how much like messing around? I think, smart work and working in a way that makes sense but it took me a long time to figure that out it wasn't yeah. it wasn't intuitive to me at all um but also i have assistance i have accountability i have multiple things like i have an inbox i have an email mm-hmm. list i have students to take care of i have third years mm-hmm. i have fourth years i have emails like I've, so i'm kind of always doing something but also i have admin time so i have a few hours mm-hmm. at work every week where i can usually like tuck in things like this and tuck mm-hmm. in other projects so that I don't have to feel like I'm going home and still having to go yeah. at that pace. Like, how do I go home and just like be with my kids, make dinner, and like chill out? That's great. So, what is the best thing about being an OBGYN? <laughs> I think the best thing is the many parts. I yeah. think the many parts becoming one field is the best thing. Yeah. If I had to do just any one thing, I wouldn't like it. If mm-hmm. I was just outpatient or just the OR or just labor and delivery or just the students, I wouldn't be as happy. I like the diversity of the spaces. Um, I like the advocacy part of OBGYN. I think it's really important that all advocacy. Advocacy. I like, I have a hard time not speaking my mind. I choose Mm -hmm. to speak speak my mind all the time. I have a, I like being in a field where that's encouraged and supported. I think that women's health, women's rights, women's control over their bodies, um, birthing people's rights and like support is an area that could never have enough advocates and voices speaking on behalf of it. So I think that's really great. Um, it's a real privilege to have the job that we have. I think of it as a, a privilege. I don't think of myself as like um, needed or necessary. I think of myself as an honored. Like I'm on. Like I had a patient I delivered on Wednesday, and she's like, "Thank you for being here." I was like, "It was a privilege. It was an honor. Like I, it was the best part of my day with at work was delivering her child." 
Um, I don't take that for granted. I think that's something really special about my job. That's fantastic. I have a random question thinking about the the, the, the new mom talking to you. Do you ever, or I guess I'm assuming you've done this, do you ever kick family members out of rooms? Not usually. Not usually. Okay. Have you Very done rare. it? Um, if there's a safety concern. A safety concern. Okay. So if patients are unsafe, if their family members are unsafe yeah. or are making others feel unsafe, Got we it. have standards of like kind of standards, but it. it's such a big moment. People usually are on their best behavior. And if they're not, usually we can kind of course correct a little bit. Um, and we do a lot of work prenatally to talk about like who's in the room Got with it. you and how are they going to support you. Have um, you ever kicked out like med students or anything like that? Or oh. No. <laughs> I don't. I think, like, if a student's not feeling well or they're woozy, yeah. I might encourage them to go other yeah. places to, like, recover. Um, if a resident's energy is not meeting the room, I might be, like, you need to adjust your energy or you mm-hmm. need to, like, find a, a peer who can do this space. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're we're working on building the skill of adaptation. Like, yeah. there was a patient a few weeks ago who was delivering and, like, her support person, the patient did not want her support person to see her vagina or her mm-hmm. vulva. She did not want them looking at all. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't pushing that well. And I was like, we got to push here. Like, if you're pushing halfway because you don't want them to see anything, like, they shouldn't be in the room. If they're going to slow down your delivery, like, they shouldn't be here. Like, but we can drape and we can have them turn. We can do things mm-hmm. so that you feel supported, mm-hmm. but we need to push. Yeah. And then her partner was a little bit, like, uncomfortable with it, like, just stressed out. And it's, mm-hmm. like, a lot to handle. And so the patient was trying to keep everyone else calm around her. And I had to be like, okay, team meeting. Team meeting. We're all on the same team. We're on your team. We're going to help you push out your baby. You're the pusher. All of us are only here to support you. Mm-hmm. If we're holding you back, we're going to change the team. And like, I was like, I'm not going to leave till the baby's out. We're going to put on a playlist. We're going to push. We're going to have fun. We're going to have a birthday party. We're going to we're gonna go. But I need everyone on the same page. Yeah. And like, we got the baby out. It was a lovely vaginal delivery. Everyone did great. But it was important to me to identify that the support she needed wasn't the support she was getting. Mm-hmm. Nothing's wrong with those people. It's their first time doing this. It's not yeah. their job to be experts. But they weren't helping her achieve her goal. They were, mm-hmm. and they weren't holding her back. But it wasn't really working. So mm-hmm. a little coaching helps. Yeah, I I asked the question because uh, I have a relative who was uh, his his wife was giving birth, and there was a medical student in the room, and the medical student said, I think the medical student, what did he say? He said, Why aren't you pushing harder? It's not that hard. <laughs> and the attending kicked the medical student out of the room. <laughs> so that was my rant. That was my rant. That was my I think, rant. I think that's the kind of thing that we're like. I think that's the kind of thing where the student is not perhaps respecting yeah. the environment they're in. Mm-hmm. Just like me as a student was yeah. like, I hope there's triplets tonight. And they were like, <laughs> shut up. And that student was like, come on, do it. Yeah. And what they probably meant to say was, I want to see this birth. Yeah. I want mm-hmm. you to do it. But it came out like, come on. Yeah. Versus like, I know you can. Dig deep. Mm-hmm. We're here cheering for you. Like there's a way yeah, you do it. I see it. what you mean. I definitely see what you mean. Okay, the counterpoint to what is the best thing about OBGYN is what is the worst thing about OBGYN? Um, people passing laws about people's bodies makes me very angry. Got it. Do you want to talk to specific laws? Specific laws about uteruses and occupancy. I feel like I, I, I could talk about this at length. Mm-hmm. I'm, not an, I'm not an expert, but I'm experienced in lots of ways. We should control our own bodies. You can control your body and I can control my body. I can write a living will. So if I can't speak my own wishes, they can be followed in my absence of my own voice. And my children, who I'm in charge of, I can speak on their behalf until they're able to speak for themselves with the vaccines they receive, the care they get, the what happens to their body. Without my consent, you cannot touch me. I can be bleeding to death and I can refuse your care. I can be choking to death and I can refuse your care. Even if I'm intubated and brain dead and on life support and you want to take my kidneys to donate to someone else, 
you can't do it without my permission. And if I can't speak, my loved ones can speak on my behalf based on my living will and they'll know what to do with me, which is also donate my kidneys, right? Or whatever, donate is it that all. Your will? No. Give it all away. <laughs> but you can't do it without my permission. Just because you want them or someone's dying or sick, you can't have them. They mm-hmm. don't belong to you. They are mine. And they can rot in the ground before I'll give them away if I so choose. Mm-hmm. The idea that just because a sperm and an egg implanted in my body I can no longer control my body or my patients can control their bodies and do what's best for them is absolutely insanity to mm-hmm. me. It will result in harm to people I care for. It will result in harm to relationships. It will result in harm to families and it will make people unsafe. As an expert in OBGYN who's done this her whole career, I was a resident for four years. I've been at Jefferson, I think 11 or 12, like maybe 11 years. I'm as good as it gets, right? I am the best one available to help. And I've seen people die in childbirth. I've seen children die in childbirth. I've seen families torn apart by the devastating outcomes of pregnancy. Despite the best care at the best university hospital with the best experts around, terrible things happen all the time. No one should have to face that unwillingly. And not all pregnancies are through choice. People have assault that leads to pregnancy. Contraception, which is relatively reliable, fails sometimes. Vasectomies fail sometimes. IUDs and tubules fail sometimes. And so this notion that it's a punishment for your choice or that it's better for everyone for you to carry a pregnancy and you can do adoption as some backup plan denies and eradicates the important choice of your body and you controlling it. I was very lucky that I chose to be pregnant. I had a very uncomplicated pregnancies. I was so lucky to have uncomplicated vaginal deliveries, recovered easily, had great kids. I'm so lucky. And I know, I think as well as anyone knows, how lucky I am to have those experiences. They were extremely hard, extremely grueling, and not easy experiences, even as easy as they were. If I didn't want them, if I wasn't happy about them, what would I have done, right? If I, you know, that's the only time I've ever been hospitalized is delivering my kids. My only time I've ever had an IV is delivering my kids. How would it have been if I didn't want that experience? How would you carry and, and take good care of something that you do not want to have or that is dangerous for you? And so... Um, I very much am looking forward to helping keep advocating as an OBGYN, as a spokesperson, as a believer of autonomy, that we should immediately change laws and make rules that protect people's access to choice. Has the overturning of Roe v. Wade affected training of residents and training? Yes, it has. Absolutely. How how is it? They are they because again, I'm clueless ignorant on these all these things. Um, do, are you not allowed to teach them certain things now, or, are you, or, or how does that work? So number one, I'm going to yeah. call you out. Stop yes, saying you're clueless. Go <laughs> learn some stuff. Yeah, you're right. You're 100% right. Go learn some yes. stuff. I need you better than this. Yes. Number two, if you're in a state where abortion is outlawed, as an OB resident, you yeah. cannot learn that skill. Okay. Residencies can't teach what's outlawed. So states like Pennsylvania, abortion is still legal up till 24 weeks. We provide abortion care yeah. and abortion education yeah. and abortion training. Patients who request them, we can help them. Mm-hmm. We are very lucky to have the university support, the hospital support, our department support. Like We are a great group. If the election in the fall means there's a Republican governor of the state, they have promised to overturn that law and make abortion illegal in the state. If the state of Pennsylvania no longer does abortion, residents of the state will go to other states to seek abortion care. Jersey and New York and Maryland is where they will go. We will send providers there to help support the need and help support the the interests, but that will affect our education for medical students and residents. So that means medical students or residents who train here won't be trained in abortion and things like that. So if they went to another state where it was legal, mm-hmm. they wouldn't know what to do. I mean, I'm sure they'd be taught and things like this, but yeah. they wouldn't go under the training. Yep, and it's a 
as abortion becomes stigmatized and becomes illegal in some states, yeah. it will still happen. It'll just be less protected. Yeah. Right? There'll be less precaution, less hospital, less access to safety and sterile instruments, less rogam if needed, less blood transfusion if needed, hesitation to seek care in emergency rooms so there's complications. We need to keep abortion legal so that we keep it safe. Abortion has been a universal for the history of humanity. People have ended pregnancies for all time for a variety of reasons and variety of techniques. Keeping it legal keeps it safe and keeps it protected. When it's illegal, it's when bad things happen and bad actors intervene. People do them at home. People do them unmedicated, unsterile, like Googling recipes on the internet, stuff through the mail. It's it's people who don't want to be pregnant shouldn't be pregnant against their will. We should support legal access for safety and for autonomy of all people. I could go into. So if I'm a medical student and I'm interested in OBGYN and things like this, um, how in medical school can I prepare myself to excel as an OB? So, for example, match into residency programs I like, I want to go into or just be a good OBGYN. I think the best OBGYN applicant has three different strengths. They're clinically strong with communication skills. Um, that could come in lots of different formats, but our patients are vulnerable and they're doing scary things with us by their side. Yeah. So they need to have great communication skills and great compassionate care. Number two, advocacy. All OBGYNs need to advocate, not for the same issues, but they need to understand the role of speaking for patients and helping move forward safety for people who are pregnant, people who have uteruses, people who need contraception to make those things important and accessible. And then three is research. Um, the safe care of people who are having babies, the safe care and safe delivery, safe hysterectomies, oncology. There's so much available for research, whether it's education research, advocacy research, whatever piece of it. Uh, I think the best OB applicants have a mix of those things. None of them have all three of them, but building those skills. So doing work with OB interest groups, doing journal clubs, doing shadowing, I think are all great things to do. Doing research, finding a project you can get involved in, whether it's small or big or OB or not OB related, but something that kind of catches your interest to show you can take a project all the way through. And then finding an issue you're passionate about to be a spokesperson for, I think is a great thing to do. Whether it's encouraging um, knowledge or change of like rules or whatever the things are gonna be, moving those things forward is really important. Um, passing your classes, doing well on your steps is important. Um, and then developing yourself as a person. So as a program, a program might say, we really wanna train high volume surgeons who wanna be operating nonstop when they graduate our program. Or a program might say, we're a community hospital looking for really good committed doctors to be who wanna work and live in our community when they graduate residency. So kind of knowing who you are, so you can kind of focus your application around those things. Got it. Uh, are there any red flags you see on on certain when people submit their applications or anything that people should make sure? Okay, I don't shouldn't do this or avoid this or be careful not to have. I this? don't think so. I don't think so. I think that look, I didn't pick OB until my clerkship started. Yeah. My all my volunteering and work in med school was ER or pediatrics. That's what I thought was most most fun to do. Mm -hmm. um, I think that just being true to yourself is the most important thing. We want diversity in the field. We want all different people to come into OB. The more different opinions and people we have in our field, the better for all of us. So we're always looking for diversity of background, opinion, training, at, you know, different places and things. There's no really red flags. Yeah. Um, and there, many OBGYNs don't do abortions. Many OBGYNs are not um, pro-choice. Many are anti-choice. It's important that they're part of the conversation as well. I don't want anyone to feel excluded or ever feel like they can't share different values than me and still be a great OBGYN. Um, I think as an OBGYN, it's hard to imagine functioning without the access to safe abortion. So I think that even if you are personally not going to perform an abortion or personally don't want to help a patient have an abortion, which is totally reasonable, 
you should be prepared to do like great referrals and have a great team around you to support those choices you're making. But I also think that all of us support the diversity of the field as the best thing for the field. And what characteristics do you think makes like a good practicing OBGYN? So say you're a resident now or an attending. What do you see? I mean, because you've been around a lot of OBGYNs, you're you are an OBGYN, right? What is what do you see in other people that you're like, oh, I admire this about this person, or I think this person does well as an OBGYN because this? Is there are there any certain aspects or characteristics or personality That's a great traits? Question. That's a really good question. Um, I think that communication is the most important thing. I think that you can work well with your team and your patient and communicate clearly is the number one thing. I think that everyone can learn good medicine. Everyone can learn to do good surgery. Everyone can learn to do lots of other things, but you can't communicate. That's, I think, relatively hard to teach and hard to learn. Um, if your patients don't trust you and you don't trust your team, it's going to be really hard to work effectively as an OBGYN. Most of us like diversity of our days. Most of us have um, happy this and that and this and that. So I think that's a good, if you're more like that, I think it's a better fit for OB sometimes. But then I partner some colleagues who do specific, specific, specific areas of OB with very little variation in their day and they love it. So in the field, people kind of find their way. Like we have a center for the Volvo Vaginal Health Center. Vulvar complaints and vaginal complaints that are usually like chronic itch, chronic pain, um, BV, yeast, skin disorders, like all different stuff. I am very grateful we have that center. The people who run the center are amazing what they work is they do great work with difficult patients who need specialized care. That would be a bad fit for me. Mm. I would be very unhappy doing that. Um, but running our triage unit or doing our walk-in clinic, I would love because it's something different every day. Mm. So I think kind of knowing who you are, but also knowing in the field, you can find your path. Some of the OBGYNs who I think are the coolest are the MFMs. They do high-risk pregnancy. Mm. They do what is MFM? It's- maternal fetal medicine. Mm-hmm. So they do ultrasounds, high-risk pregnancy, high-risk deliveries, high-risk surgeries. They do a very specialized care. Um, some of them do more ultrasound. Some of them do more inpatient. Some of them do more outpatient. Some of them do substance abuse disorder and stabilization through methadone. Like, there's so many facets of that care. Some of them do tons of research on preterm birth and preterm labor. So, like, that's such a cool part of OBGYN. But you got to get through OBGYN to get to that cool part. And other people do like urogynecology and pelvic organ prolapse and incontinence work. It is a lot of bladder work, but it's through the OBGYN lens. Others do adolescent medicine. So it's all kids and teens with OBGYN issues and concerns. So like in the field of OB, there's something for everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you see uh, any exciting future directions that OB, I guess more specifically, maybe what you're focusing on or what your interests are in the field of OB? Like is there are going to be more robotic surgery in the future of OB? Or are we going to use little nanobots that can actually go in and take out the uterus without <laughs> any humans touching it whatsoever? <laughs> Um, I mean, there's only two ways to get a baby out. There's a vaginal birth and a C-section. Mm-hmm. I don't foresee massive changes in that. I would like to build a zipper in, but yeah. I think that's been, that's been discouraged. Um, I don't know. Robotic surgery has been a pretty good part of OB for a while. I think it's a great tool. It's used well to help deliver like fibroids and uteruses and like, you know, cancer surgeries mm-hmm. and stuff. I don't know about huge technology. I think what we're working, everyone has their answer. My answer would be maternal mortality. Okay. And trying to get childbirth safer and trying to do a better job of reducing that rate as low as possible. We are not doing well as a country on that. And it's a huge issue we can do better on. I think maternal mortality is number one. I think abortion access, abortion care, keeping that safe and in hospitals and in settings where it's supervised, I think is important. I think that the generation of doctors who are where I am never thought we'd see Roe overturned. The ones older than us, a little bit older than us, remembered what it was like before. Mm-hmm. 
the ones younger than us are coming up in this age of this like kind of new and difficult time. I think that the next fight is going to be a legal fight, um, mm-hmm. finding good cases, finding good lawyers, finding good precedents, and making sure that these rights are safe and protected for always. What is um, what are the biggest factors in maternal mortality? Cardiovascular disease, uh-huh. hemorrhage, um, blood pressure diseases like preeclampsia, eclampsia, that kind of stuff are huge players. Racism. Um, there's an incredibly rate of black moms dying in this country. Um, we can tie it to all types of different things, but it's definitely a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the different issues there and the care issues there. Um, yeah, those are the big ones. Infection and stroke a little bit, but those are the big ones. Well, this has been amazing, Dr. Lackridge. Thank you so much. You've given me great insight into what it takes to be an OBGYN, what a successful OBGYN does, and how I can actually get into and start thinking about becoming an OBGYN. Is there anything you want to say, anything you want to end with, or anything like that? Anything you want to plug? Have a Twitter, an Instagram, (laughs) a Facebook, a YouTube channel, uh, Pinterest. Someone was telling me a Be Real. Do you know Be Real? Have you heard of this thing? Of course I know Be Real. I'm I'm on TikTok, but it's just my dog. Do you want to post your name? No. You don't? Okay. No, it's my, my kids do my account. It's just okay. my dog. Um, I would say my things would be, I think everyone should have the privilege of a career that brings them joy. And I think that if you're thinking about your future career, it can be hard to find what's best for any one person. Looking at just intern here, just residency, seems like overwhelming, but you should have a long career after that. And your career should bring you joy. If it's not bringing you joy, I think you're in the wrong field. Um, and so I think that I was really lucky that I found OB and lucky that I got into OB and I've been able to succeed in OB. I feel so lucky about all of that stuff. But if a time comes where I don't want to deliver babies overnight anymore, which could happen, I would love to have a field of OB where I could keep working and doing what's passionate for me. For me, I love education. I love the medical students. You guys bring a spark to my eye and joy to my day. But also I like hoping that each of you go into your careers and fields armed with a good foundational knowledge of OBGYN and of women's health needs so that no matter what you go into, you consider how that might affect a family, a woman, a uterus, someone who's pregnant or could become pregnant before you prescribe a medication or do a surgery or other things. Like it's important to have a well-rounded perspective. Um, I think OBGYN is the coolest field of all. I think that we are really lucky that we get to do. We're really privileged to get to do it. I think that we're making huge strides to make the world a better place through the work that we do. Um, and if there's an apocalypse, I think OBGYN is a great field to be in because should there be like a zombie apocalypse, people will still be pregnant and having babies um, and still needing OBGYN care. I often think about if I was like transported in time to like the Middle Ages or the zombie apocalypse of the future, like I'm good to go. You would be useful. Definitely. I think I would be useful. I think you would be. I think I'd be very useful um, in a way that not everyone might be useful. No. Um, not that it's a competition, but I think I'd have a good a good chance. You'd be up on the ladder there for sure if it was a competition. Well, I'd be having, I'd carry people on my back. I'd yeah. like try to bring them with me, but I think it's a good place to be. Um, and I think that women's, health and people having autonomy over their bodies is a core value of, 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 for me and of medical education, medical ethics. I think that, I think it's too important to be quiet, too important to not speak up about and too important not to advocate. I think if everyone asks their patients about their stories and their journeys, you'll be shocked at what you hear. Um, one in three American women have had an abortion in their lifetime. Wow. 50% of pregnancies in this country are unplanned or unexpected. And of those unplanned, unexpected ones, some end in abortion. Many who have their anatomy scan are on Facebook and they're like, oh, anatomy scan, it's a boy, it's a girl. And others are quietly 
dealing with surprise findings on their anatomy scans, cardiac anomalies, brain anomalies, massive structural issues with their pregnancies, and they're deciding about aborting or not aborting a pregnancy that was very desired and has serious issues to it. People have ectopic pregnancies that might have heartbeats, and so they're under certain laws where they can't be removed safely. That's life-threatening for the parent. Mm -hmm. A pregnancy is a pregnancy in some states, and a heartbeat is a heartbeat in some states. Right, A 15-week woman who's broken her water and the pregnancy has no chance of caring, determined, delivering alive in some states cannot have an abortion to save her life, even if she's septic. Right, We need to, as a country and as a medical environment, not to look at the most extreme cases of the oldest and the youngest and the sickest and the most sad, but everyone should have the control over their own body to do what's best for them, and we should support them and help them. And so I think... Whether you go into OB or not, I wish everyone success and you know and do well in their lives. But I think everyone should take those core values and look at how we can listen to our patients, listen to their stories, listen to the realities they're facing, and then support them on their journeys. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Lackerts. Thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome.